today, uh, man, we, uh, as we are going through our sermon series for the summer, which is, you know, we go through a book and uh, we're going through the book of Ezra. Today, if you have your Bible, you'll turn to the Old Testament. Uh, if you're wondering where Ezra is, there's two books back to back called First and Second Chronicles. If you can stumble across one of those, it will be the immediate left or right behind, turn right behind Second Chronicles and you'll find your place in the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra is very interesting because we believe that God is calling us to something great. We believe that God is calling our nation, our church, our city, and our state to restoration. We are at a place where we need to be restored back to God. We're at a place as a nation where uh, the new we think that man, man's ideology, man's psychology uh, trumps God's theology, God's word, his truth. We know that the word of God is settled forever. And uh, upon it, you can either build your life. It will be like building upon the rock or you can be crushed by the rock. Amen. But God's word endures forever. Matter of fact, the whole concept of Ezra was uh, centered around one man named King Cyrus who came in and overthrew the wicked, brutal dictator King Nebuchadnezzar, and man, I'm telling you that God spoke of King Cyrus a hundred years before he was ever born. God told Isaiah, I'm going to raise up King Cyrus who will come and set my people free. Now understand something, that before they were in bondage, God already said he had prepared a man to lead them out. Uh, Today, before we ever fell short of the glory of God, His mercy and His grace, He had already prepared a man named Jesus who would become a baby and grow up and become the propitiation for our sin, the payment for our sin. So today, God's Word is settled forever. Everything about it is true. Everything about it is just. Everything about it is matter of fact. Today, the cool part is, man, we're looking at a celebration to be remembered. A celebration to be remembered. In our nation, we've been celebrating a lot of things lately that is kind of crazy, and it actually leaves us scratching our heads saying, what in the world are we celebrating? Where in the world are we at? What in the world is happening? And last week, we looked at that with a clear declaration of how God wants us to live in perilous times. If you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go online and pick that up on our website or If you don't have that ability, ask Caleb or go to the core. And man, we'd love to get you a DVD from last Sunday's sermon because I believe there's some fundamental truths about how we should live in these perilous times. In these times when the only sin in the world anymore is to actually call a sin a sin. Amen? Preach, preacher. You know, that's the only sin anymore. And so today, the only thing that... uh, You can't be anymore and get away with it as a Christian. A blood-bought, child of God, sanctified, filled with the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit of God. And so today, as we come together, what is this celebration about? Why are they celebrating? What was there to be celebrated? Now, let's set the stage for a moment. Israel had been in captivity 70 years. They had just went back. They had been back in the area of Israel probably for about five to six months. And uh, and then this event in chapter 3 starts taking place. 
basically they were walking around a rubble heap. Now it was more than a rubble heap. It was a a pile of ashes. Every the whole nation of Jerusalem, the temple had been burned. Everything had been laid waste. The walls had been broken down. One of the ways in the old days that they would uh, uh, win a war a lot of time was by fire. If you can't beat them out, burn them out. And so, man, if they could get the city uh, circled, uh, they would burn it down. Matter of fact, our own downtown Alexandria was burned down, burned to the ground during the Civil War. If we can't beat them, burn them out. Fire will put them on the run. And so that's what happened when King Nebuchadnezzar came in and took the children of Israel into captivity. On the way out, he lit a match and burnt the whole thing to the ground. Now, understand something. Let me tee this up for you. That uh, it's one thing to walk around a run-down area, but it's another thing to walk around an ash heap. I mean, have you ever set a pile of leaves on fire in your backyard? And uh, the burnt, the, I mean, the smoke, it just... It automatically consumes everything about you. I mean, it gets it gets on your clothes, it gets on your skin, it gets in your hair, and you have to clean up to get rid of the scent. Amen. I mean, you may have just been passing by. I mean, isn't it amazing how uh, I mean the scent of smoke travels in such precarious ways? I mean, you can just be standing outside and somebody can be smoking a cigarette. 50 feet away, around the other side of the building, and somehow it just makes its way and drifts over there right where you are. Now, the interesting thing about smoke is it's a mess. I'll never forget uh, when the church that I was pastoring burned down. uh, Man, it was a mess. That whole hillside stunk. You'd walk amongst the crisp and the charred ashes and then it was wet and had been the fire department had sprayed it down, was covered in water. And man, I've got books and uh, a lot of papers and stuff that I rescued that few things that weren't completely consumed in that fire. And they still stink. Still stink. Ten years later, they still bear the stench of being charred. Boy, it's a mess. It's one thing to walk around a rubble heap, but it's another thing to walk around something that's been burned. I mean, you could walk into that old building, you'd have to go home and clean up. I mean, it just stinks. And that's how this was. The whole city of Jerusalem had been burned down to the ground. Now, this just wasn't any old brush arbor that they had thrown together that had been destroyed. This was Solomon's temple, which was actually David's temple. It was so overwhelming. Go to the book of First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. You can read about how all that took place. It took David years of storing up treasures, require acquiring treasures to build this fabulous temple. And now they walk there and they look around, and boy, the whole temple was just destroyed. It was burned down. Now here's the children of Israel who've been living amongst this mess for about five to six months. They had went. The Bible says in chapter 3 of verse 1, it says, By the seventh month, the Israelites had settled in their towns. So the first five, six months that they were back, it took them all this time just kind of clearing out a place to live. Just kind of clearing out a place amongst all the burn and debris and rubble to find a place to settle in. 
Now, after they got their own place settled, they came back, and the Bible says in, in, in this passage of Scripture, Zerubbabel came. If you look in chapter 3, in verse 2, it says at the end of verse 2, and then they began to build the altar. They began to build the altar. Now, the thing that I want you to understand today is that to get to a place of a celebration of a lifetime, something that would be remembered, that you could never forget because the power of God was so overwhelming and so strong, a couple of things had to be top priority. Number one, they had to develop a new level of commitment. The new level of commitment drove them to rebuild the altar. They rebuilt this altar because they had a new level of commitment. They had been in Babylon. They had been over there for some 70 years. They hadn't offered sacrifice. They hadn't had church. They hadn't had a relationship with God. And I'm telling you, they were dried up, spiritually speaking. I mean, they hadn't had the, 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 I mean, now go back. To Second Chronicles, the Bible says, when they dedicated the temple, the power of God was so strong. The glory of God fell on that temple in such a way that the priest could no longer continue ministering. The power of God was so strong. And that kind of happened here a little bit last week in second service. I mean, the power of God fell in this place. I mean, we just camped out in worship for quite a while. It was like we didn't know how to move forward. We didn't know how to move backwards. We didn't know how to move to the right or the left. It's just like, you know what, Lord? If your spirit's here, we're just going to hang out right where you are and right what you're doing. The power of God had been so strong that they hadn't experienced that the whole time they had been in Babylon. Because for the Jewish person to be able to get to that place, there was a lot of steps that they had to go through, a lot of ritualistic things of the Old Testament law that had to get them to the place where they could meet with God. And so one of the first things they had to have was an altar. Because an altar was something of importance. You see, an altar was a link between God and man. The altar was the place. It was the link. It was the connection point where man connected with God. It was a type of a cross in the, in the Old Testament. The altar was a cross in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, the altar was something that you would stretch out and you would put it there and, and you would make a sacrifice to God. We learn about this in Exodus chapter 20 and verses 24. It lays it out with great detail and specificity. The Bible says this very interestingly because an altar is at a place where your life begins to change. Now, for the Jew, it had to be a specific altar. It had to be laid out in fashion that it was prescribed to be. For us in the New Testament and, and living on the, in the dispensation of grace, for us, the interesting factor is this. That the altar became the cross. And he tells us that we should, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, that we present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And so therefore for us, it took, takes on a whole new dimension, a whole new meaning. And God is doing something interesting in our life. 
And what God wants to do in our life that is so interesting today is that He's wanting to take us to a deeper level, to a deeper commitment, and to a place where we may meet with Him. To the Jew, they couldn't get to God until they got to the altar to have an intimate relationship. But for you and I in the dispensation of grace, your altar may have been a pine knot somewhere out in the middle of the woods. It may have been a rock on a hillside. It may have been the back of seat of your car when you just fell down and laid out a seat and said, God, I can't take it anymore. It might have been in a church house. It might ain't no telling where it could have been because when Jesus removed the barrier, therefore you and I have direct access back to a holy God. Amen. Now, church, if that isn't something to get excited about, we need to wake up. Amen. I'm telling you, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of, of perplexing going on in our nation. Where in the world are we? What in the world are we doing? But I want you to understand something interesting that the What's happening in our country in the problem, it's what's happening in the church. The church has lost the altar. The church has lost the place where they meet with God. The Bible says in the Old Testament, it says that let the priests weep between the front porch and the altar. How long has it been since we met at the altar? You see, a new level of commitment came from unity. They had unity. You remember last week, we looked, or a couple of weeks ago, we looked at that, at the number of people that went back, and they went back to 42,360 were unified with the vision to go back and believe God for the nation of Israel, believe God to get to the place where they could have a relationship with Him again. There was unity in that. There was unity in that essential. In the New Testament, we learn about unity over and over. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1, it teaches us about the unity there. It teaches us about how the, there was the unity in Acts 1 and 14. It says that they were in one accord. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, they met house to house and were in unity. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, it was unity. What God is looking for is a hand of men and women, boys and girls who are rallying, to, who are willing to rally around the cross of Calvary, not around theological pet peeves that aren't worth fighting or squibbling over, but rally around the fact that we need God. That we need a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Our city needs the manifestation of God upon it. This map behind me is a representation of our city. Our city needs God. Our city needs a man of God, women of God, people of God to rise up and bloom where they're planted. Bloom where they're planted. Right there on their street. Right there on their street. Right there. Making a difference in unity. There was a, such a new level of commitment. You see, power comes in unity. Power comes through the cross. And power is complete in the resurrection for you and I. For these guys in the Old Testament, they had a new level of commitment. Their new level of commitment was they needed to rebuild the altar. Rebuild the altar. If I think about Family of Grace Church, and when God has done the most, it's always been when His people were willing to respond the most. When people were willing to move and do business with God. Whether that be in the singing, whether that be in the preaching, whether that be in the invitation. 
But there was the unification at the altar. There was the agreement at the altar that the power of God falls when His people are hungry, when His people are thirsting for Him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. Happy, fortunate. What are we longing after? The Bible says, As the deer panteth for the waters brook, so my soul longeth after thee, O Lord. That word panteth in the Greek, I mean the Hebrew translates to painfully seek after. Today I want you to understand that as your pastor, I don't have all the answers. Your mama and your daddy don't have all the answers. The government doesn't have the answers. But Jesus has the answers. He is the answer for the world today, church. He is the answer for the world today. Amen. But we have to rebuild an altar. The second thing they did was they had a, not only a new level of commitment, but they had a new level of obedience. You see, you can be committed but not be obedient. Our churches are full of committed people. So for a lot of people, it's not the, com- the commitment level. I mean... There's people that have been occupying the same church for year after year after year after year. The commitment of them being there and showing up and getting a check by their name was not the problem. It was the obedience factor. Because every man begins to have their own desires and own pet peeves and their own pet projects. And they begin to want to go in a hundred different directions instead of rallying around the unity of the vision. The family of grace, the unity of the vision is to penetrate through the racial, through the economical, through the cultural, through the social barriers, through the generational barriers to help people get to Jesus that Jesus may transform their life. They had a new level of obedience and because they had a new level of obedience. The Bible says they began to do something interesting. Look with me, if you will, in verse 6. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Verse 8 says, in the second month of the second year. So on the first day of the seventh month of the first year of the reign of King Cyrus, this is interesting, they rebuilt the altar. Then five months later, they began to relay the foundation. They began to relay it. The foundation for what? The temple. The Bible says this. It says, um, if you go back and look at verse 6, it says, and they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the temple wasn't laid yet. Now, why is that important? Because everybody's waiting on the next thing. Well, when I get here, I'll worship God. When I get this, I'll worship God. When I get this in order, when I get this job, I'll settle down and have time for the Lord. When we get this as a church, well, then that's when I'll step up and I'll help and I'll begin to pour and invest my life. And it's always the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But I am telling you, what happened in these men's lives was they got out there in these women's lives and they just cleared off a place amongst the rubble heap and the ashes and they built an altar and they began to have communion with God. And I want you to understand something today that what God is looking for is a man and a woman who rise up right there at your house and begin to have communion with God like you've never had before and then you take that communion and you bring that 
intimacy into corporate worship. And then when you get to the place where you need something else, I'm telling you, all we need today is a, is a place that we can fall to our knees and say, God, I need you, Lord, I need you, I need you. They had been having offerings and sacrifice and worship for five months. And then somebody said, well, I guess it's time we need a temple now. And so the Bible says, right here, in verse 8, it says, And after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, and all the Levites who had returned to Jerusalem from captivity began to build. They appointed the Levites who were 20 years old or more and supervised the work of the Lord of the house of God. And they began to do the work of the Lord of rebuilding the house of God. They had to remove the rubble off of the old foundation. Because you can't build on something that's futile. I'll never forget when we got that whole building demolished. Of the church I was pastoring because it burnt to the ground. There was this massive slab out there. And when you walked on that slab, I, you know, you would think, man, what? well, this sure looks okay. It was good enough for the old building. Why can't we just rebuild on this slab? You know how much money that saved? All that concrete, all that dirt work. That's a whole phase that we can skip and just start rebuilding on it. But no, that's not how it works. So for probably about a week, I drove around on a little bitty mini traco, punching holes in the concrete, breaking it up all over the place so that we could come in and remove the old foundation so that you could come in and begin to prepare for the new. And that's what they began to do. Five months after having intimacy with God, they came in and they began to remove the rubble. There's plans that you have to go by. You can't go by what seems right. You have to go by what you know is right. See, we, we live in a day and time today where we want to go on what, we, what seems okay. What seems practical? Well, it makes me feel good. It would made me feel good as a pastor had we been able to skip that whole first step and probably save about $50,000. That would made me feel good. Amen. How about you? I mean, come on, church. Fifty grand in your pocket and saving a whole month's worth of work, that will make you feel good. But when you go to the doctor and you're sick, do you want him to make you feel good or you make him want you you want him to make you feel better? Come on, amen. You want me to tell you the truth? And so these men, they had to begin to rebuild according to the word of God. And the Levites were building the house of God. And if you look at that, they returned to the Word of God because the Word of God is the only place that we can go. You remember last week we looked at that in John chapter 6 and verse 66 when the disciples began to turn and walk away and Jesus turned to the twelve and he said, Do you want to go away also? And Peter said, Lord, where else can we go? You have the Word of life. 
I'm telling you today that if you are listening to a preacher somewhere of the church or you're listening to somebody at home and the message that he is preaching doesn't transcend time, if it doesn't transcend culture, if it can't be preached at your church, if it can't be preached in the rice paddies of Haiti, in the mountains of Peru, you need to find a new message because the gospel transcends nations, tongues, people, and locations. rebuilt the altar because they had a new level of commitment. They relayed the foundation because they had a new level of obedience. But something else happened. In their hearts, they had a new priority. Their new priority was to no longer stumble around Babylon living like a bunch of pagans. But they wanted to have intimacy with God again. And so they resolved to praise the Lord. Let me read for you some of the most powerful verses in the Word of God. Look with me in your Bible at Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple. Do you see that? Who, who laid it? The builders. The craftsmen. When they had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple. The priests then went and put on their priestly robes. And they began to hold trumpets. And the Levites descended. And they were carrying cymbals. And they took their positions. See, every one of you has a position God's given you. A spiritual gift. Nobody else can do it. That's why a family of grace... If God hadn't called you to a place or a ministry or a service, then we want you to quit it because you're taking somebody else's job who's called to do it. And that doesn't mean you can go home and fold your arms and watch TV. You have a job. You have a calling. You have a gift in this, and you need to find it. The Bible says this. They did it according to the instruction from King David. Verse 11, and they sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good. Do you believe that, church? He is good. He is faithful. Do you believe that, church? His love endures forever. Do you believe that? Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. Oh, here's where it gets interesting. But many of the older priests and Levites and family leaders, mm, mark this right here, who had seen the first temple, wept loudly when they saw the foundation of the house. But many others shouted joyfully that the people could not distinguish anymore between the sound of the joyful shouting and the weeping. Because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. Perhaps one important thing to note right here is that any human being can weep, can mourn. It's a basic fundamental of life. Even animals mourn. Even animals turn sad. It's the basic fundamental of life, especially human life, to be able to weep and mourn. Any person can look at despair and weep. But only 
only the believer can look at despair and say, I believe in my heart in the power and the presence of God. See, anybody can say, well, what if? What if? But only the believer can say, with faith I look forward. With faith I look forward. The interesting thing that occurs here is that the young people didn't remember the old temple. And so they were in the middle of the ash heap shouting, Woo, boy, we got us a new temple. We got us a new temple, boy, it's going up. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And they had a resolve to praise the Lord. I'm telling you, this was a, this was a, a, a celebration to be remembered. Some were shouting so loud, some were weeping so loud that you couldn't tell who was crying and who was shouting. And it says they heard it from afar. It is better to rejoice in what you have than weep over what you've lost. This is the 9 o'clock service, so I'm going to say that again because you may have missed it. It's better to rejoice over what you have than weep over what you've lost. The weight of the past will rob you of the joy of the future. And some of those older people who remembered, you know what they remembered? I'll tell you what they remembered. The splendor and the, ma- the majesty, the, the aweness of Solomon's temple. They remembered those massive cedar beams that had been placed in that temple. They remembered the huge stones and gems in that temple of Solomon. And they basically walked around there and said, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. They began to weep. It'll never be that good again. It'll never be this good again. In their mind, they had a picture of Solomon's temple. And when they looked around, all they saw was a bunch of burned up rubble heap. Oh yeah, I mean, they saw a new foundation. They were happy to be there worshiping again. But they thought, oh my goodness, it'll never be that good again. That young bunch that had never seen Solomon's temple because they were born in Babylon. They didn't know any better but to shout and praise God because God was doing something new. Boy, does that sound familiar? How many of us the last couple of years have just been walking around saying, Oh my goodness, America will never be what it once was. Oh, my goodness. I just hate that my children won't grow up in the country that I knew. And it begins to weight us down so much that we can't see the future. I'm telling you that in the middle of Babylonian captivity, living under a pagan king, God brought the children of Israel out and began the process of restoration. And it took the young ones to have faith to move forward. And today, quit looking back. That's in the past. You never relive one day 
Let's ask God, what does he want us to do this day? How do we live in perilous times on purpose, with a purpose, with confidence, with compassion, with conviction, to make a difference for the glory of God? Quit thinking it's the end of the church. I'm telling you that hard times are the church's best friend. In the underground church where they can't even assemble like this in China, the church has been flourishing and prosperity, flourishing, flourishing, flourishing. What God is looking for is somebody who will rise up with a new priority, with a new commitment and a new level of obedience and say, God, it doesn't matter what's going on around me. It's what's going on within me that makes a difference. God's looking for. Will you be the one? Will you be the one to do that? To let God speak to your heart. Haggai, you remember I told you? Haggai and Habakkuk. Haggai was one of the prophets while they were building this temple. He says in chapter 2 and verse 9, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord. And I, in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord. God's wanting to do something special in our hearts, in our lives today. You know what's interesting in closing? When you look at this, the same word in the Greek that they use for shout and hear was the same word that was used when Joshua circled the walls and shouted and it fell down. It's the same word used in Psalms chapter 100 when it talks about shout. Give a joyful shout unto the Lord. What God is looking for is somebody who will rise up in the midst of adversity and praise him. In the midst of burned down buildings and praise him. Would that be you? Would that be me? We can be the catalyst that makes a difference. Religion won't do it. Dead orthodoxy won't do it. Going to church won't do it being a believer from the inside out will do it